Following the Easter break, we are back for another week in the world of the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and you can find me and submit questions for future guests for the show on Instagram. We are on at hstebbings1996. It'd be great to see you there. But to the show today, and I'm very excited to welcome Colton Andrus, founder and CEO at Gremlin, the failure as a service startup that finds weaknesses in your systems before they cause problems. To date, they've raised over $8 million in VC funding from some of the best in the business, including the likes of Mike Volpe at Index. Ventures and Mike Dauber at Amplify Partners, both prior guests on the show, I'm very pleased to say. And prior to Gremlin, Colton was a chaos engineer at Netflix, improving streaming reliability and operating the edge services. Fun fact, Colton also designed and built Netflix's failure injection service. And before that, he improved the performance and reliability of the Amazon retail website. At both companies, he served as a cool leader, managing the resolution of company-wide incidents. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Shadul Shah at Index for the intro to Colton today without which this episode would not have been possible. But before we head into the show today, are you, like me, a lot of contacts, but not the best at organisation, to put it mildly? Well, then you need Full Contact. Full Contact provides the ability to organise your contacts, gain rich insights into them, and therefore build deep relationships. With features like automatically identifying and merging duplicate contacts, to the ability to snap a photo of a business card, and Full Contact will transcribe them for you. So no more lost and loose business cards at events. It's with these features just being the tip of the iceberg. Full Contact really is the best all-in-one solution for contact management and you can check them out at fullcontact.com And speaking of checking something out, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another cool player in SaaS, FreshBooks. You might remember we had their fantastic founder, Mike McDermott, on the show last month. Well, in case you missed it, FreshBooks is ridiculously easy to use cloud accounting software for small businesses and self-employed professionals. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses and getting paid online, FreshBooks is drastically reduce the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork and you can learn more at freshbooks.com and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like freshbooks did visit wepay.com forward slash sasta wepay's got this incredible cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments again that's wepay.com forward slash sasta but that's quite enough from me so now i'm very excited to start talking sas with colton andrus founder and ceo at gremlin good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up Colton, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. As I said, I heard so many great things from Shardul and the whole team at Index. So thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Not at all, but I want to get started today with a little on you and how you made your way from the very small companies of Amazon and Netflix to entering the world of SaaS with your founding of Gremlin. So tell me, how did that come about and what's the founding story of Gremlin? Yeah, I'd, I'd always wanted to do a startup. I recall being a 10-year-old boy telling one of my aunts that, you know, one day I wanted to run a software company. So the desire and the intent was there. After college, I worked at some smaller firms before or the small companies, as you call them, of Amazon and Netflix. But the opportunity to really grow and learn at Amazon and Netflix prepared me for the opportunity to do a startup. And it was a public speaking event where I was speaking about the work that we had done at Netflix, where I was in the lobby of the conference, and I got in a bit of an argument with a venture capitalist about why I was going to bootstrap and why I didn't want to take VC money and why I was a little skeptical of the entire Silicon Valley 
VC ecosystem. And obviously, in retrospect, he had some pretty good counter arguments and we kind of went back and forth. And that started a conversation that led to us taking some seed funding and getting Gremlin off the ground. Can I be really uh, intrusive and ask, what was your thesis for the bootstrapped argument? And what was it about his argument that made you realize that maybe he had the upper hand in this discussion? Well, I grew up with a very frugal mindset. You know, we didn't have a ton of money. We weren't poor, but we were always very conscious. And my dad, when I was 12, he told me, look, if you want anything, get a job and pay for it. And so everything that I've always had, it's something I've bought or I've paid for. A fun story there. I took out a loan to buy a computer when I was 12 and I used the money from my paper out to pay the monthly payment for that loan. So I've been I've been in debt since I was 12. <laughs> and so when I thought about doing a startup, I was really cautious. I wanted to save up enough money to where me and maybe another founder could just go without salary for six months or a year, build out you know a minimum viable product and really see if there was something there before we committed to the whole lifestyle. I think one of the best counterpoints he made was the opportunity to kind of bound the risk of a startup by taking on venture capital. Yeah, you're giving up some ownership and you're sharing some control, but you're also able to pay yourself a salary. You know, I have five children and so and we live in Silicon Valley. Not taking salary for a year would have been drastic impact on our personal finances. Whereas with venture capital, I can pay myself not quite the Netflix salary, but enough to get by so that we could focus on the business and not be focused on our personal financials. No, absolutely. That's a very good point from the VC. VCs are always right, I've learned. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They've got a lot of practice. Uh, They do indeed. Uh, I do want to break the interview up into a couple of different segments today. I want to start on some of the big learnings and takeaways from your time at Amazon, then move to the culture and innovating on culture, and then finish on all things trials, discounts, and pilots. Does that sound good? Sounds great. So lessons from Amazon. You mentioned, obviously, your time there. I want to start with that. And we've spoken before, and you eloquently referenced that they kicked your ass, so to speak, in some cases. So how did that come about? And what was the ass kicking for and about? I mean, that's a bit of just the Amazon and the frugal, you know, work hard, play hard, have high expectations mentality. But in particular, you know, one thing that comes to mind was goal setting. So I recall being a younger engineer. We're part of the availability team. So we're in charge of keeping the website up. And when we're talking about goals for the next year, what are our uptime goals? You know, basically, we got in a debate with me and my director where it was like, look, the goals that you're setting forth are unachievable. Like, there's just no way we're going to hit these. So why would we take goals that we know we're going to fail? And the answer was, yes, we know we're taking goals that we might not achieve. And we're doing that on purpose because taking a much more difficult goal forces you to not just follow an iterative approach, not just kind of take the plan and work harder, but it requires you to really be innovative about what are you going to do differently to achieve that goal. But the flip side is it doesn't feel great to take a goal or miss a goal and feel like you're not living up to that high bar that you would want in achieving all your goals. Can I ask, how do you manage that internal discontent and maybe disincentive when the goals aren't hit then that are set initially? That's difficult. During my stint as a manager at Amazon, I inherited a goal that was very hard to achieve that was not created by my team and wasn't really based in reality. And we worked our butts off and we darn near hit it. And in the end, we missed it. And it was a blow. It was a blow to morale. It was a blow to me. You know, as a young manager, it felt like I failed when really I had achieved a lot and we had done a lot of work. Personally, the takeaway there is it's a balance. You know, you want to have high goals and high expectations. You also want to look for opportunities to reward people for the progress that's made along the way. And I think we could have done a little better on that latter part in this circumstance. Mm -hmm. From the the harsh realities 
of those tough goal-setting days of Amazon. What were the big learnings then for you from that experience that you really now have taken with you to building and scaling Gremlin? Yeah, one thing from the Amazon days, we were building this tooling for usage inside of Amazon, things similar to what we're doing today with Gremlin, but it was not a thou shalt use this software scenario. We went to teams and we made it available to them. And if it saved them time and they enjoyed it, then they used it. And so from that, the phrase that always kicks around in my mind is if you want engineers to do the right thing, you need to make it easy. And I think that translates to people in general. If we want people to do the right thing, we need to think about how to remove friction from the process, how to make it streamlined, how to let them focus on the task at hand and not get bogged down in the minutiae. I'm intrigued kind of the Amazon corporation and style of running teams is always hailed as, as Jeff says, the, the two pizza team. How did the experience of working within that help you shape thinking on, on both the decision-making front and the team formation front now with Gremlin? Yeah, I'm a big fan of the two pizza team philosophy. And so that was ingrained in me early on. And it's just kind of how I view the world. That and the you build it, you own it, you operate it mentality. And whether or not, whether you're an engineer or you're in marketing, that concept of having skin in the game, of really doing the work, feeling the pain and being incentivized to make it better are just kind of the way I view the world. Now, absolutely. In terms of kind of, we mentioned the team now, obviously culture is central to all things team. You've openly advocated before for, for hiring remote workers. I'm intrigued. Why are you such an advocate of this model, do you think? In my mind, this is just an evolution in the way that we do business. No longer are the days, I, I said this, it came up in conversation yesterday, no longer are the days where we have one corporate headquarters. There are many places where people are able to work and coordinate. And one of the keys there has been having good sources of truth. You know, now that we can use something like Slack or a, a chat program, then we can move the office conversations from being at HQ and into a place where everyone that needs to know can observe them or participate in them. And so I think it's just it's more powerful. It allows us to be more flexible. It allows us to hire in different places. It allows us to, when people want to travel or they need to go home and be with family or whatever comes up, it seems just superior in the logistics. For the engineers of the world, it absolutely makes sense. When working in sales and marketing, where maybe kind of the idea sharing and kind of team collaboration elements are more central, do you find it still has such success? I think that there's a balance. It's In my mind, it's a, it's a bit of an 80-20. I think most of the time, you still get the value of being remote, whether you're in sales or marketing. Those same kind of conversations and, and context sharing things can happen in text or on a video call. But there is value in being face-to-face and having that camaraderie. We actually have our entire team together today from kind of a, around the country and around the Bay to have an all-hands and to, to share context and then to hang out and play poker later and and drink a couple of beers. And so you want that, but it doesn't have to be all or none. You can have a little bit of both. So with the many positives you said that everything from cost to personal freedom, what are the big challenges then in establishing this? And what did you have to overcome to really make it a part of Gremlin? Yeah, it was easy in the early days because it was a couple of engineers just trying to get work done and coordinating. But as we grew, it became more of a challenge. I think the thing that I learned that surprised me was it's not necessarily where people are, but 
when people are. If you have somebody, we had somebody early on that was in Europe and the time zone overlaps between Europe and California were such that most of our meetings and most of our discussions needed to happen in this hour or two overlap. And a lot of the ad hoc discussion or debates that would come up would happen more in the afternoon Pacific time. He didn't feel part of, and that left him feeling less part of the team. And so while we tried to shift time and do things as much as possible to support him, ended up not being a good fit for him and, and he left the team. And so I, this is one that I always kind of retrospect in my head. How, what could we have done better? How could we have approached it? And in part, the lesson is time zone overlap is important. It's something to be thoughtful of. Can I ask, you, you mentioned the element of cost there earlier. Do you have comp adjusted to location? Obviously, San Francisco, as you said, living in the Bay, it's one of the most expensive places in the world to live compared to, say, Texas, which is cheaper. Do you have comp adjusted? Yeah, so we can be flexible in that regard. You know, I've moved to using market data for different locations in how we choose to put offers forward and in how we look at compensation. In the first early days, in the first few hires, it wasn't as relevant. You know, some people could be paid a little bit less for cost of living, but we were all making less and we were picking people up for what we could. As we've grown, I've, I've seen it to be a little bit more, but frankly, while the Bay is one of the most expensive places, a lot of the other places I'm finding talent, the cost of living and the market has risen, not to the same extent, but proportionally. And so I think it's an advantage, but it's not one that I'm super high on that I'm writing down. That's like my favorite thing about it. No, absolutely. You said that reflecting on that element that didn't work out with the different time zone. I'm intrigued. This is your first rodeo as, as a first time founder. I have to ask, what's been the hardest element of really learning and scaling to be that SaaS founder that you need to be and your investors expect you to be? Yeah, it's been fun to learn all the types of the business. I think one thing I've loved as an engineer is that whenever you change companies, you learn a new industry, even though the software stays the same. And so in part, I've enjoyed learning HR and setting up payroll, not a lot, but a little bit. Uh, my curiosity <laughs> has peaked. I, I've enjoyed sales and it's something that I've got a bit of a natural knack at, which is probably why I've enjoyed it as much. Marketing to me has been a bit of a black box. I've spent a lot of time with a lot of smart people to try to understand the various roles within a good marketing team. When these marketing roles apply and really unlock potential or allow you to do things that you couldn't before. And as an engineer, we engineers are just a little skeptical of being sold to. And I see this today in the way that sales has evolved and marketing has evolved. Because if you try to go with too much of a sales pitch, you try to put on kid gloves too much, so to speak, the engineers will, will catch that. They'll feel like you're being insincere and they won't want to talk to you. And so instead, we've seen this you know, approach of doing more sincere developer-based community marketing where we just need to share knowledge and teach people and leave the sales pitch out of it. So would you say that marketing has been the hardest element to being a first-time founder? Yeah, I would. Yeah. Absolutely. Has there been any big surprises along the way? Ones that you didn't expect? Ones that weren't commonly cited to you that maybe were potential hiccups or, or joys? I mean, the surprise for me, I have a pessimistic view of the world. And, you know, when I started this with my co-founder, Matt, I said, hey, we're going to give this a good shot for a year, maybe two. And if it all burns to the ground, at least we gave it our shot. And kind of the surprise, which I don't know if it's a combination of being prepared, being lucky, good timing, things have gone well for us. And so I'm always kind of cautious about complacency. I've seen many a time where you're ahead of the game or you feel like things are going well. And so people, you know, they take their eye off the ball. They become a little bit less disciplined. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and bad things start to happen. And so the good surprise is things have gone well, but 
the corollary to that is to always be thoughtful and diligent. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I do want to delve one layer deeper into the business, though, and one that I I know is kind of pretty unique to Gremlin before we move into the quickfire, and that's the element of kind of free trials and pilots, so to speak. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I want to start on this. What do you think most companies do wrong when offering trials, and how do you look to do that differently than with the offering of Gremlin today? Yeah, so I think in regards to trials, it's really about doing real work together. Again, putting on my engineering hat or my engineering background, you really, if we want to prove that there's a good relationship, whether it's software or hiring or something else, it's less about that theoretical academic approach to a problem. And it's more about the practical practitioner based, how do we get something done? And so I think most free trials, you're not putting it necessarily in your production app. You're not necessarily putting it to work in a way that you would need it to in the real world. And so it's difficult to get to some of the edge cases and subtleties that become important at either at scale or in an urgent circumstance or things of that nature. Absolutely. And how do you look to counter that with Gremlin? What's your Gremlin trial process? Yeah, so we we do free trials and we allow people to sign up and to have a month of our product. But the forcing function that we use is called a game day. And so a game day is a little bit like a hack day where we get a bunch of teams in the room and we want to run these chaos experiments to understand how their systems behave. You know, we'll usually do it in like a testing or a staging environment, but we want to do it on real services, on real code with the engineers that own and operate that in the room. There's kind of two benefits to that approach. One is hopefully our customers are finding real problems as part of that process. And so they've given us no money, but hopefully they've received value from using our product, even just during the evaluation phase. And then secondly, it really shows them what using the product would be like for real. And so we walk away from that not having to do follow-up proof of concepts or follow-up trials. Really, we have engineering buy-in at the end of that game day, and then it becomes an exercise, as you probably well know, in in legal and contracts and the like. Do you find engineering buy-in enough today? In the bottoms-up world of SaaS that we now live in, is engineering buy-in enough? And at what stage does the ACV require maybe more broader buy-in? I think it's, it's requisite but not sufficient. If you don't have the support of the engineering team, I can't imagine getting a deal done. It always happens later on when you're talking to a different part of the business, you're talking to procurement or someone else, and they're going back to that engineering team to vet the contract, to understand the value and the value proposition. And so if you don't have the engineering org in your corner, you know, it seems like that could quickly go off the rails and become an unproductive discussion. I do want to discuss one final element to kind of reducing the friction, as you said earlier, which a lot of people and founders do employ discounting. What's your thesis on discounting? And do you think there is and isn't a place for it today? Yeah, you know, it seems to me that discounting is just something that is done. And so in in many regards, it's an expectation. It's not even a a nice to have. In some regards, it's not even something you can do as a gesture anymore, because it's just the way that that software is sold or the business is done. To me, you know, a lot of my early deals, it was trying to figure out, it was trying to quantify the value that we were providing. You know, in our world, we think about the cost of downtime. And it's typically tens to hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars an hour. And so, you know, trying to draw the line between, hey, we're going to help you prevent two or three large scale incidents next year. We think that will save you a million dollars plus a bunch of engineering time. What does that actually mean in terms of how we price Gremlin and how you use it and that engagement? And I think with all things in SaaS world and, and in early days, it's a bit of an experiment. You know, we had some thesis uh, and we went and we've tested 
tested them out. And for the most part, you know, our original theories have held true, but definitely we've iterated on it and we've improved it as we've gone. Can I ask, what didn't work and where did you find iteration actually stuck and it did? We really wanted to price based upon services. So if you think about the microservice world, where now a team and a set of software is owned and deployed independently, that seems like a really good unit of measure to bill upon. You know, what we do today is is a classic per instance model. And part of the reason there is it's simple and it's well understood, but it doesn't scale well for our customers. And so we we start to get to these friction points when we have a really large customer or really large deployment. But the difficulty with moving to like a per service model is it's a bit ambiguous. How I define a service might be different from how you define a service. If you have a, a bad actor, they could definitely structure things in a way where everything looks like one service when they have a hundred, so they don't have to pay as much. Not that I'm as concerned about that, but just some of the difficulty in being on the same page and then quantifying it. And then as we talked about the legal and the contract phase, and then nailing that down in legal terms has proven to be slippery and difficult. It's always slippery and difficult when legal get involved. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, I do want to move into my favorite being Colton's 60 seconds faster. So I say a short statement, you give me your immediate thoughts in 60 seconds or less. Does that sound good? Yeah. So you mentioned the VC discussion earlier. What's the one thing you as a founder most want from your investor? I want to know about the unknown unknowns. You know, I have a pretty good idea of the world around me and how it works, but tell me about the things I'm not thinking about that are down the road that are going to cause me pain. When is a stretch, a stretch too far in the expectations of an employee? Yeah, I think that's the balance similar to the goals at Amazon. You want to hold people to a high bar, but you have to recognize the progress and the value made. And so the point where it stops becoming a fun collaborative challenge and starts to become a death march or a grind. That's that inflection point in my mind. Tell me a moment in your life, Colton, that's really served as this inflection point and changed the way you think. I mean, well, an obvious one is actually that debate with a VC in the lobby of a conference where I realized that I could move from a successful engineer into being a startup founder. And it was something I'd always wanted to do, but it's a little different to always want to do it and then be, you know, standing at the edge and given the opportunity to leap. What's the favorite SaaS reading material? We mentioned learning curves earlier. What's that helped you really scale the learning curve of being a first-time founder? Yeah, early on, I enjoyed some of the reading on founder-led sales by Peter Kazansky. But I really look for leaders and influencers on Twitter, people that have done it before, the practitioners that have felt the pain. And not as much reading, but more just reaching out and spending time with entrepreneurs. I found them to be very generous with their time. And so just spending 30 minutes to tell someone your problems and get their advice has been immensely valuable. And then the final one, what do you know now, Colton, that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time with Gremlin? It's about the metagame. I think in particular of like VCs or of SaaS sales in general, it's knowing how everyone else thinks about the problem because that's important to how people approach it and the assumptions they make. And so there's these connotations around every round of funding and what these milestones entail. There's connotations around how much dilution happens or how much money is typically raised and what success looks like just to take the VC example. And so just knowing what what everyone else thinks helps you to understand and and quantify and judge the trade-offs. Colton, as I said, I heard so many great things from everyone at Index, but especially Shoddles. So thank you so much for joining me today. And it really has been so much fun. Thank you very much, Harry. I appreciate the opportunity.
I mean, what exciting times ahead for Gremlin, and I want to say a huge thank you again to Colton for giving up the time today to be on the show. If you'd like to see more from him, you can find him on Twitter, at Colton Andrus. I'm sure he will respond given that recent response. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can find us on Instagram, at hstebbings1996, with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, are you, like me, a lot of contacts, but not the best at organisation, to put it mildly? Well, then you need Full Contact. Full Contact provides the ability to organise your contact gain rich insights into them, and therefore build deep relationships. With features like automatically identifying and merging duplicate contacts, to the ability to snap a photo of a business card, and full contact will transcribe them for you. So no more lost and loose business cards at events. It's with these features just being the tip of the iceberg, full contact really is the best all-in-one solution for contact management, and you can check them out at fullcontact.com. And thanks to our friends at WePay, do not forget to check out the very cool player in SaaS that is FreshBooks. As I said, you might remember we had their fantastic founder Mike McDermott on the show just last month. Well, in case you missed it, FreshBooks is ridiculously easy to use cloud accounting software for small businesses and self-employed professionals. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork, and you can learn more at freshbooks.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like FreshBooks did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta, and they've put together this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. As always, we just so appreciate your support. It means a huge amount to me and I look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.